the topic to me is very dear because it's on the topic of salvation. And I couldn't think of something more important than salvation and what is going to be the state of us in the afterlife. And it's one of the reasons why I actually became a Muslim. Because I had such a problem with the Christian understanding or the Christian doctrine of salvation. It's a question of how do you want to actually spend your eternity? We think about what we're going to eat for dinner the next day. What we're going to do this weekend. How are we going to spend next week with our family or friends? Do we spend enough time actually thinking about where we're going to spend our afterlife? No. I'm not worried at all. I rely on God, Allah. Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salam ala rasulillah. Jazakumallah khair to all of you, my dear brothers, my dear sisters, for coming to the fourth event as part of the United Islam Awareness Week 2022. This is the 10th year that this has been done. Over these 10 years, we've included more universities, more communities in a united front to not just tell the world or tell Canada or tell our neighbors what Islam isn't, we're actually saying what Islam is and we know it to be the truth and we know it to be the solution to the issues human beings will face. We have our beloved brother, Brother Jake, also known as the Muslim metaphysician. <laughs> brother Jake is a Muslim YouTuber and produces content on religion philosophy, and Islam. He's also a public debater, and a very famous one at that, and has frequented very f uh, famous places, and defeated even more famous people. MashaAllah. He debates with Christian scholars on the highest level, attempting to deconstruct the Christian doctrine and deliver the true message, which is the message of Islam. And he does so in such a graceful and beautiful way that he's calling people to come back home to their true fitra, the true path, the true path to success, which is Al-Islam. His talk today will be on the salvation of Christianity and the salvation of Islam. And so without further ado, Brother Jake, could you please take it away? Inshallah. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Wassalatu wassalamu ala rasulillah. Amma ba'd. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Alhamdulillah. It's great to be here today after that passionate speech. <laughs> I'll try to do my best to follow it up. And uh, I just want to say it's a, a pleasure to be here with you guys. I appreciate the invitation. And I see a lot of people here, so alhamdulillah. I hope that you guys will get something out of this talk, inshallah. And uh, like the brother mentioned, the topic to me is very dear because it's on the topic of salvation. And I couldn't think of something more important than salvation and what is going to be the state of us in the afterlife. And I'll just give a, I know the uh, sheikh here has given a little bit of background about me, but for those who aren't familiar with me, um, I come from a Christian background, so I'm a revert to Islam. I became a Muslim about 10 years ago, alhamdulillah. And my entire family was and still is Roman Catholic up until today. 
So this topic is very important to me. It's very personal. And it's one of the reasons why I actually became a Muslim. Because I had such a problem with the Christian understanding or the Christian doctrine of salvation. And so what I'm going to attempt to do here today is I'm going to attempt to explain what the Christian doctrine of salvation is first, and then I'm going to explain what the Islamic conception of salvation is and do a compare and contrast of these two positions and attempt, uh, inshallah, to show the superiority of the Islamic conception. I believe that it's intuitive and that it coincides with the natural state of man, the fitrah, that it speaks to humans. And so, bi'idhnillah, I will now present it. And just so you guys understand, the topic, because I didn't actually give it yet, the exact title of the, today's talk is Death of the Innocent or Mercy of Allah. This is the question that I want people to think about because this is the very question at hand. Now, before I get into the Christian doctrine of salvation, what I want to first talk about is why this is so important. How important this actually is. Well, it's a question of how do you want to actually spend your eternity? I mean, we think about it. All of us sitting here today, we have our regular lives. Of course, there's nothing wrong about that. But we think about what we're going to eat for dinner the next day. What we're going to do this weekend. How are we going to spend next week with our family or friends? But do we do enough time? Do we spend enough time actually thinking about where we're going to spend our afterlife? And that's a very serious question, not just for Christians, but for Muslims, anyone. When you start to get older and you developed and, and you mature, at least from my perspective, because I can't, became a Muslim when I was around 20 years old, alhamdulillah, and when you start to develop and you have these big questions about life, why am I here? What is my purpose in life? These are such vital questions that Islam provides an answer and a solution to these questions. And I think, with all due respect, it's lacking from the Christian perspective. It attempts to provide an answer, but I don't think it's actually a good answer. Inshallah, I think that we'll see that in just a second. If there are any Christians here, I don't know if there are any Christians here, I don't mean any disrespect about uh, what I'm about to say. So, it's so important because we want to understand how we're going to spend eternity. We want to know our purpose in life and what is expected of us from our Creator. Okay? So that's just to set the stage for why this topic is so important. Now, what is salvation in Christianity? Now, first of all, what I mean by salvation is just how we make it to paradise or Jannah, how we are reconciled with God, with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the Christian understanding, and of course, I have a limited time, so please excuse that I can't go into all these finer details about different positions, but broadly speaking, the Christian position is that the second person of the Trinity, which is also a Christian doctrine, the Trinity I'm sure you guys are familiar with, but for those who don't know, it's the idea that the Christians believe in one God, supposedly anyway, that exists amongst three persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the second person, which is known as the Son, became a man in Jesus of Nazareth. So it's the idea that God became a man, and this is vital for their doctrine of salvation. So God supposedly became a man, and the reason why he became a man 
was to die for our sins, which is a very radical claim that Christians make. But there's two other important factors, because if we want to, and this is something that's so important, if we want to actually give dawah to Christians, if we want to speak to Christians, we have to accurately represent what they believe, you see? We have to accurately represent what they believe and then try to explain why we think the Islamic conception is actually superior and provides answers that the Christian supposed solution does not solve. So there are two other important aspects that Christians claim. They say, and this is something that Muslims can actually agree with, this is a point where we agree, that Jesus, peace be upon him, was an innocent man, that he was not guilty of anything. Okay? So this is a point where we agree. Another point is that they say that he gave up his life willingly for sinners. Now, obviously, we as Muslims, we don't believe in that, but we're just trying to lay down the foundation for what Christians believe. So it's, it's the idea he did it willingly. He wasn't forced or compelled to come and die. It's not like the father forced him to come and die. Okay. So a question that immediately arises probably in the minds of many people here and, and many people in general, really, is hold on a second. If Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, how could he possibly die? Because God cannot die. So how could Jesus, if he's God, how in the world could he possibly die? And from a Muslim perspective, it is so utterly blasphemous to say that God could possibly die. It's just, you know, we just want to close our ears when we hear something like that. Now, for those who have had questions or, I'm sorry, conversations with Christians, and when you say this, how, you know, brother, how could you believe that the creator of the heavens and earth could die? How could you possibly believe that? Well, they may respond and say, well, brother Jake, we don't actually believe that. We, we say that, you know, Jesus had two natures. He had a divine nature and a human nature, and he only d died in his human nature. Well, what I want to do is I want to investigate that claim I want to see if the Bible, as understood by Christian scholars, their ulama, actually understand it acceptable to say that God actually died. And if so, what are the implications of that? So there's a passage, and I'm going to start going through references now. So if anybody wants to follow along, uh, you know, try to take notes, because this is going to be very heavily referenced. So um, the first one is in 1 Corinthians in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8. And it's supposedly written by Paul, the apostle. And it says this, None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So the one who was crucified, which in the Christian understanding is Jesus, peace be upon him, is also given the title of Lord of glory. Now many Christians try to point out and say the Lord of glory is actually a divine title. Well, the issue with that is, if we grant it for the sake of argument that the Lord of glory is a divine title, then whoever the Lord of glory is, which is God himself, this verse says that he was crucified. So on the one hand, if you want to say that this verse shows that Jesus Christ, peace be upon him, was God, then you're going to have to accept that God was actually crucified. Now, what I want to do is I want to show that this is not just my interpretation of the text, that very famous Christian scholars have actually noted this as well. So I'm going to give references from Christian sources. This is not going to be Jake 
just making up my own tafsir or exegesis of the Bible because we wouldn't want Christians to do that with our scripture, with the Quran. So St. Augustine, who's a very famous 5th century church father, he comments on this verse and he says this, in like manner, the name of God or son of God or Lord of glory, which is the title we just mentioned in the verse, or any other such name is given to Christ as the word. So notice it says the word, which remember the word became flesh in John chapter one. So it refers to the divine, not the human side. And it is nevertheless correct to say that God was crucified. So imagine that God was crucified. So this is not a misrepresentation of what Christians believe. And we'll see from another Christian scholar that they actually happily embrace it and say that it's absolutely necessary for your salvation. Imagine that God had to come and die on a cross so that you could make it to heaven. Now, there's another passage in the New Testament that seems to conflict with that. So we have to be fair. We say, well, maybe Christians have a little bit of truth still in, in the text of the Bible. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, it says, speaking about God himself, who alone has immortality. To be immortal means that you can't die. Who dwells in an unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So in a certain sense, Muslims can agree with that because we say God himself, he's immortal. He can't die. But wait, how does this make sense if Jesus is supposedly God and you're saying that he died? So we see there's a sort of internal conflict between these texts of the scripture. And these are both in the New Testament. You see? Now, I'm going to quote another Christian church father. And these are not just, you know, the next person is Gregory of Nazianzus. He's a saint or considered a saint in the church. He's a church father. This is not Gregory off the street somewhere in uh, Edmonton. <laughs> this is a reputable church scholar. And this is what he says in his famous work, The Theological Oration Number 45. This is quite graphic and shocking language. We needed an incarnate God. So we needed him. We needed an incarnate God, a God put to death that we might live. We were put to death together with him that we might be cleansed. We rose again with him because we were put to death with him. We were glorified with him because we rose again with him. So it's the idea, and he happily embraces is it, that we needed incarnate God, a God put to death. Imagine that. Imagine being so bold to happily embrace the claim that we need God to die. No, from an intuitive perspective, from what we would say in Islam, a fitri perspective, an intuitive perspective that we believe that all men all humans were created upon this innate disposition to know the truth that there's only one God and that Islam is actually true, submission to the creator. I believe within that is the conception that God actually cannot die, that anybody who, even a child who hears this will just say, well, what's going on? That's, that's a bit strange, right? It's a bit perplexing. So note two things that this seems to be happily embraced and a necessity for salvation. And the reason behind it is that we needed God to come and die to save us. Okay, we're going to flesh that out a little bit 
as we go along. But the Bible, a point that I want to move on to next, is even if we grant it for the sake of argument, this absurdity that God actually came and died. Okay, let's, let's say for the sake of argument, okay, God actually came and died. Is this truly just? Is this epitome of what God's justice actually is? This is what I want us to think about as we go through this next part of the lecture, inshallah. Is an innocent person, because remember they believe that Jesus Christ, peace be upon him, was innocent. Is the idea that an innocent person dying for the sins of all the guilty, is that what true justice is? Is that the epitome of justice? I don't think so. I don't think that makes very much sense as being just at all. Now imagine a scenario in which there's a murder that happens, okay? And the person who commits the murder, he gets caught red-handed. And he actually, when he gets caught, he actually comes out and says, you know what? I did commit the murder. I was the one who killed John. I shot John, okay? And then we go to court and the trial happens and the family, the victim, uh, victim's family is sitting in the pews of the, you know, of the courtroom. And all of a sudden, a friend of the perpetrator gets up and says, hold on a second, judge. I know that you're about to sentence this man to death. And I know that he's the one that did it and he admitted it. And he's guilty and I had nothing to do with it. But I want to take his position. I want to be the one to actually take his position and receive the punishment that you put down in this court. What do you think the judge is going to say? They can say, what is this guy talking about? Where did he come from? <laughs> He's bailiff. Somebody get this guy out of here, right? Nobody's going to take that seriously. Even the secular society, the court would recognize that this is just crazy. This doesn't make any sense. You see? What that's attempting to demonstrate is that this very concept doesn't seem to be even what common society sees as just. It doesn't make sense to the common person. But not only that, because we believe that true morality, obviously, to a certain extent, is intuitive, but we also want to ground it in Scripture. So what I'm going to show now and argue for is that even the Old Testament, which is the Jewish Scriptures, is not actually in accordance with this Christian understanding. And this is very important because, as you may know, the Bible is, generally speaking, composed of two main sections. You have the Old Testament, which is the Law of Moses and the Prophets, etc. And then you have the New Testament, which is supposed to be about the life of Jesus Christ, peace be upon him. And the Christian is supposed to accept both Testaments, even though they say it's the Old Testament and, you know, they've moved on to a slightly different way of life, et cetera, et cetera. But nevertheless, they're not supposed to invalidate what the Old Testament says. The New Testament is supposed to be a continuation of that. See, and even Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 said that he has not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Speaking of the law of Moses. So let's take a look at the Old Testament and see whether or not this understanding of salvation is actually in the Old Testament. Because if it's not, and it's actually more in agreement with the Islamic conception, then we see that the odd one out, which is sort of sandwiched in the middle, so to speak, is Christianity. 
You see? So in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 18, verse 18, and leading on after that, it says this. As for his father, because he practiced extortion and robbed his brother and did what is not good among his people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity or his sin. Yet you say, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? When the son has done what is just and right, and he has been careful to observe all of my statutes, meaning all of my laws, all of my rules, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. Now remember, Christians believed that Jesus, peace be upon him, was sinless. So what was he killed for? That's a question I want us to think about. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity or sins of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. Okay? The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. But, now God says after that, he's laying down the law, he's saying, look, a person who commits a crime or a sin... He's going to be punished for it. The soul that sins shall die. Not John down the street who had nothing to do with it. Likewise, your righteousness is yours, not somebody else's that had nothing to do with it. What are you giving him credit for? But God says, now, hold on a second. The second part, I'll give you a way out if you committed a sin. Here's a way out for you. But if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes, and does what is just and right. He shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. Meaning I won't even remember it. This is what God in the Old Testament is saying. For the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. Again, when a wicked person turns away from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, he shall save his life because he considered and turned away from all the transgressions that he had committed. He shall surely live. He shall not die. So there are two important factors that seem to go against the Christian doctrine of salvation here. First, God in the Old Testament is saying that an innocent person doesn't die for the sins of the guilty. Each person is put to death for their own sin. That's the first point. Second point is, it's saying that this idea that the Christians have that salvation, in order to have salvation, you need to have some type of sacrifice. Blood must be shed. This seems to go against this because what is God saying? He's saying if you repent, if you make toba, if you repent to God himself and turn away from all that wickedness that you've done, it won't be remembered and he will forgive you. Why? Because he's a God of mercy. You see? So these are two important things to note from this text that seems to conflict with the Christian understanding. Now, just so you, you know, anybody watching or listening doesn't think that I'm cherry picking, I want to show other verses in other books of the Old Testament. So we can go to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16, which it says the same thing, essentially. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. Same idea, right? Again, in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 6, 
And it actually, so this is an application later on after Deuteronomy, after the book of Moses. It takes that law, quotes it, and then applies it to the situation. See? So we see it actually in practice. It says, but he did not put to death the children of the murderers according to, was writ- according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, where the Lord commanded, and now watch, it's a direct quote of what we just read in Deuteronomy. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers, but each one shall be put to death for his own sin. And then we see that again in Second uh, Chronicles chapter 25, verse 4. But I think those references should suffice for the point, you see. We can give much more, but of course we're limited in time, so we don't want to go too much into it. But the basic idea is that an innocent person doesn't die for the sins of the guilty. Now, what about repentance? We already hinted at it. God gave us another way out. But what is that way? And what is the relationship between repentance and sacrifice in the Old Testament? Because we can't deny that the Jewish scriptures had an idea, and even to a certain extent Muslims, because on the Eid we do perform a sacrifice, right? But as we'll see later, what does that actually mean? It's not the Christian understanding, you see? So let's take a look at what the Jewish understanding is. In Hosea chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, it says this. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity, meaning you've sinned. But now I'm going to give you, I'm going to tell you what to do now. Take with your words and return to the Lord. Say to him, meaning, so it's telling you to say something. Take away all iniquity, except what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Meaning instead of sacrificing a bull or an animal, we're going to pay for that sin with repentance and with our words, with our lips, what we say. You see, so we see there's an alternative here. Again, in the Psalms, which is said to be written by the prophet David, alayhi salam, Psalm chapter 51, verses 16 and 17, it says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, meaning, God, you don't even delight in sacrifice. You don't like it. You don't want that. You don't care about that. Or I would give it, meaning David is a prophet of God. He's saying, by the way, God, if you did actually really desire sacrifice, I would give it. I would give it day and night. But listen to what he says. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. You don't really care about the burnt offering and the incense and all this kind of stuff. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. That's what God really cares about. He doesn't care about the incense and the slaughtering of a goat and all this kind of stuff. He cares about a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Again, and this is a very interesting text in Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. For I desire mercy, this is God speaking, for I desire mercy and not sacrifice. How could you be any more clear than that? God himself is telling you what he desires. He actually desires to be merciful towards you. And he doesn't desire sacrifice. And the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. That's what he wants. He wants a sincere repentance and turning away from that wickedness. Because if you just do this burnt offering stuff or the slaughtering of animals and you're not really changing your ways, what does it matter? What is it good for? Nothing. doesn't mean anything. See? 
Now, an important thing, and, and many of you have probably heard living in this society, if you've spoken to any missionaries or seen them online, they say, listen, you Muslims have a, you know, a terrible conception of salvation because you believe that you could actually merit God's favor in some way and you can actually get to paradise without the shedding of blood. Meaning they say, you need... Dear brothers and sisters, you need the blood of Jesus in order to be saved from your sin. Now, where do they get this idea from? Because we see it's not really a Jewish concept in the Old Testament. They get it from the New Testament. And one passage that I've identified is Hebrews chapter 9, verses 22 and 23. And it's a very interesting text because even within one verse, it seems like a contradiction. Maybe you guys can tell me what you think. Uh, later on if you want to comment on it but it says in Hebrews chapter 9 verses 22 and 23 indeed under the law almost everything is purified with blood so we see almost everything is purified with blood this is what the author is saying then listen to the next half of the verse and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins well, hold on a second. I thought it was almost everything, not everything. And now you're saying without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So which one is it? But this is a very important thing because, okay, we leave that for a side. That's kind of nitpicking, right? But we're going to focus on the concept of them making the claim without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Well, we could already dismiss that based on what I've already presented because we already saw that God said, what did he actually care about? Not the burnt offerings and the sacrifice, but a contrite heart and a broken spirit. That's what he cared about. But I'm going to do one better. I'm going to show a direct contradiction with the Old Testament in Psalm chapter 40, verse 6. So let's compare when it says there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. And sorry, I forgot to read the next part of the verse, which is important. It says, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Now, don't worry too much about all this language, but basically what the author of Hebrews is saying all throughout the book, he's trying to make an argument that these animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, they were sort of foreshadowing of the eventual sacrifice of Christ, which is the perfect sacrifice. This is the idea he's saying. But the key thing is he says it was necessary what does it mean for it something to be necessary? It means it couldn't be any other way. So it's not just saying, hey, Jake, this is the way it is. Jesus came to die for your sins. No, it's saying that even if God wanted to, he couldn't possibly do it another way. Imagine that. He couldn't possibly do it another way. Well, we see that that already doesn't make sense based on what I've already presented. But in Psalm chapter 40, verse 6, and this is an extremely powerful verse, and I haven't seen it used enough in Dower with Christians. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted. Now, again, notice the same thing. You don't really, de you, you don't really delight or desire sacrifice and offering. But you have given me an open ear. But then this is the most important part of the verse. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. So this is a direct contradiction. The author of Hebrews is saying it is required because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And David in the Psalms is saying burnt and sin offering you do not require. 
So which one is it? Does God require it, as the author of Hebrews says, or does he not require it, as the author of the psalm says? This is a very uh, problematic dilemma for a Christian, you see? Now, what I want to turn to is a theologian by the name of St. Thomas Aquinas, who's a very famous, some of you may have heard of him, Thomas Aquinas, very famous, respected doctor of the Catholic Church, you see? He actually comments on this issue, and to many Muslims in the audience may be surprised, he actually sides with the Muslims and says that it was not necessary. Now, of course, he doesn't agree with us in the sense that he believes that this did happen, which we don't believe Jesus, peace be upon him, was crucified. We don't believe he came to die for our sins. But Christian missionaries make a much stronger claim. They don't say, oh, Brother Jake, it happened. They say that God could not have done it another way, that it was necessary, that he had to die for your sins. You see? So this begs the question, what are you saying? Is it not in God's power to forgive you without coming to become a man and die for your sins? That would mean that God is not really all-powerful. How could he be all-powerful if you're saying he was kind of hamstrung into coming to die for our sins? He couldn't have done it another way. So Thomas Aquinas recognizes this, and he deals with this issue. And this is something I think that we can quote when Christians come with this argument because we can say, look, some of your own scholars aren't buying that. Even though they believe that this is what happened, they don't say it's the only possible way for God to forgive us. Because they try to say, look, your, your Muslim understanding of God's mercy is a corrupt understanding of God. You couldn't, God couldn't just forgive you. But Thomas Aquinas doesn't agree with that. So he says in his famous work, the Summa, in the third part, question 46, on the contrary, and he quotes St. Augustine, who we actually quoted before, who's another very well-respected church father. We assert that the way whereby God deigned to deliver us by the man Jesus Christ, meaning the way by which we do receive salvation, who is mediator between God and man, is both good and befitting the divine dignity. Now, we don't agree with that part, but he's setting it up. He's saying, look, this was a good and befitting way. We'll tackle that, and we've already, I think, tackled it by saying we don't think so. But then... The second part, he agrees with us where he says, but let us also show that other possible means were not lacking on God's part to whose power all things are equally subordinate. So notice what he's saying. Even though this happened, there is another possible way. And how does he explain that? Because God is all powerful, which is what I just said. Then he goes on further to say, therefore, speaking simply and absolutely, it was possible for God to deliver mankind otherwise than by the passion of Christ. Why? Because no word shall be impossible with God. And that's a quote of Luke chapter 1, verse 37. So when Christian missionaries say, wait, there's no possible way God could forgive you without the blood of Jesus. Well, hold on a second. First of all, the Old Testament doesn't agree with that. And even some of your most respected scholars don't agree with that. They say there was another possible way. God just supposedly chose this. So once we remove that obstacle and say, hold on a second, your own Bible and your own scholars say that it's not the only possible way. Now that leaves open the possibility for the Islamic conception, you see? Because now you're showing that their conception isn't the only possibility. 
And then, then we move to a comparative analysis between their view and our view. And we show that our view makes much more sense and is much more in line with the Jewish scriptures, which came before Christianity. See? Now, this leads to two final questions that I want us to think about. If the Christian still wants to think, well, it's absolutely necessary. Well, that leads to two severe problems. First, is God weak? Meaning that he's not all powerful. He couldn't have done it another way. And the second, is God merciless? Is he without mercy that he couldn't have forgiven us? What kind of God is that? Do you think God is the most merciful and he couldn't forgive you? So the question is, if God is all powerful, then there should be another way to reconcile us to himself. There should be another way. Second is we've already established from the Old Testament that sacrifice is not required based on Psalm chapter 40, verse 6. Third, we said that what God really cares about is repentance and a contrite heart. That's what really matters. So, if God is the most merciful, then why would he require a blood sacrifice for forgiveness? Imagine that. Just think about it to yourself. You know, we all have situations in life where even, you know, close family members and friends may disappoint us. They may even do you wrong, right? It's happened. And you're disappointed with them. But if the person comes to you and says, you know what, brother, I'm sorry, I wronged you. I really apologize for that. And I know I was wrong. You know, in the beginning, you might, your ego, to be honest, might get a little bit in the way. And you say, get away from me. But eventually, inshallah, because as Muslims, we're supposed to be merciful, right? We should forgive him, inshallah. If we see that the Nia is real, he's really repentant for what he's done. Right. Now, imagine I turn around and say, you know what, brother, I forgive you, but you got to give me a hundred dollars first. <laughs> you got to give me a hundred bucks before we really complete this situation that we're going through. <laughs> He's going to look at me and say, what are you talking about, man? This this is crazy. This is some foolishness. Right. What I'm showing here is that that's not what we do. If we have enough mercy to forgive our fellow man without requiring a payment or a shedding of blood, or in our case, a worldly example, giving some money or something, and God is more merciful than us to an infinite degree, how could we possibly think that we are more merciful than God, that we could forgive somebody else without requiring payment, but God can't? How does that make any sense? So, what I argued thus far is that the Christian perspective doesn't seem to be in line with the Old Testament. It doesn't seem to be in line with common sense. And within the Old and New Testament, there seems to be contradictory narratives. And lastly, the Christian perspective we showed, even based on their own scholarship, doesn't, isn't actually a necessary position. It, God didn't have to come and die. He could have done it another way. And lastly, that the Christian perspective seems to result in a God who is neither all-powerful nor the most merciful, you see, which they claim that he is. And Muslims, we could agree with that part. But now what I want to do is I want to shift to the Islamic conception, and I want to contrast it with everything we've just said thus far. So first, this, what I would say is a monstrosity, of God dying, can Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the creator of the heavens and earth, can he die? What does the Quran say about that? 
In the Quran, chapter 25, verse 58, it says this, and rely upon the ever-living who does not die. Now notice the next part. This is, you see, the, the nature of the Quran is so miraculous, you see? Notice the next part of what it connects to. And exalt Allah with his praise. And sufficient is he to be acquainted with the sins of his servants. Why does he connect this issue of being ever living and not dying with this idea of being sufficient to be acquainted with the sins of his servants? Because he doesn't need to become a man to find out, oh, who the sinners are and to forgive us. He doesn't need that. So we can see in a subtle way, to the dismay of many Christians maybe, we see that the Qur'an actually does understand the Christian doctrine. It interacts with it in a subtle way, sometimes a bit more explicitly, and then refutes it and gives an alternative narrative, you see? So, very clearly stated, all we need is one verse for it. God in the Qur'an cannot die. This is clear. We don't have this issue. What about the justice of Allah? Okay. In the Quran, chapter 4, verse 40, it says, Indeed, Allah does not do injustice, even as much as an atom's weight. Imagine an atom, how small an atom is, or even less than that. He couldn't do any injustice. While if there is a good deed, he multiplies it and gives it from himself a great reward. So if you do a good deed, he multiplies it for you. And he has no, he's not even capable of doing injustice. He couldn't even fathom it. It would never happen. Again, in the Quran, chapter 45, verse 22, and Allah created the heavens and the earth in truth and so that every soul may be recompensed for what it has earned and they will not be wronged. So again, notice, every soul will be recompensed for what it earned, not what this brother uh, got, not what I got or you. Everybody's going to be responsible for what they've done. And they will not be wronged. That's a promise from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran. On this further idea, again, on the responsibility of your own sins, we see this phrase in the Quran repeated over and over and over again like a drumbeat. What is it? In the Quran, chapter 35, verse 18, and no bearer of burdens will bear the burden of another. We see this over and over again in the Quran. And if a heavily loaded soul calls on another to carry some of its load, nothing of it will be carried, even if he should be a close relative. So on a day of resurrection, if I say, oh, by the way, <laughs> I need you, Dr. Schindel, to take some of my sins away, all of a sudden, that's not happening. God's saying it's, it's not going to fly like that. What are you thinking? you're going to be accountable for what you did, not somebody else. Even if it's a close relative, don't even think about it. Don't even let it cross your mind. Why? Because it's not just. It goes against his justice. You can only warn those who fear their Lord unseen and have established prayer and who, and notice this again. So we have the one who, who does wrong and then watch at the end of the verse. And whoever purifies himself only purifies himself for the benefit of his soul. So we see the person who does wrong and has those burdens, it's on himself, and then also the person who purifies himself, he purifies himself, not some guy who doesn't even know who he is. You, you don't get, it's not like this weird sort of mystical uh, purity that all of a sudden is going to go to somebody else across the world. No. If you purify yourself, it's for yourself and your soul alone. And to Allah is the final destination. So we see the Quranic understanding is quite clear.
Now, what about this business of sacrifice? Because I said, as Muslims, we do have the sacrifice on Eid. You know, we have the holiday where we sacrifice, right? But what's the understanding of this in the Quran? And notice, you know, subhanAllah, when I was doing some of the uh, research for this, and you actually compare it to what I read in the Old Testament, you see it's really in agreement. So in the Quran, chapter 22, verse 36 and 37, it says, And the camels and the cattle we have appointed you for we have appointed for you as among the symbols of Allah. For you therein is good, so mention the name of Allah upon them when lined up for sacrifice. So we say Bismillah, right? And when they are lifeless on their sides, then eat from them and feed the needy and the beggar. Thus we have subjected them to you that you may be grateful. So it's a point you may be grateful. Now listen to this. This is very important. And this is very important to uh, portray to Christians so they understand what we, what the point of sacrifice is for us. Their meat will not reach Allah, nor will their blood, but what reaches him is piety from you. Has nothing to do with the blood or the meat of the animal. It's the piety, it's the obedience to the creator where he told you to do something and you turn around and you actually abided by his commands and you did it and you had the sincerity. It's the piety that matters, just like what they said in the Old Testament. You think God really cares about some blood or meat? It's not reaching him in that way. It has nothing to do with that. Thus we have subjected them to you that you may glorify Allah for that which he guided you and good give, give good tidings to the doers of good. So this is the explanation of what sacrifice is. So we don't completely neglect it, but we say it has to be understood in a proper context, you see? Now, what about repentance and the mercy of Allah in the Quran? Because you remember the title of the lecture is The Death of the Innocent, which is Jesus, peace be upon him, or The Mercy of Allah. Which one are you going to take? So in the Quran, chapter 39, verses 53 and 54, it says, say, قُلْ It's telling the Prophet, peace be upon him, to say, O my servants who have transgressed against themselves, so again, it's clear. It's given to you a situation. Say, okay, you transgressed against yourselves. And this is for us Muslims even, right? Because it happens. Nobody's perfect. Do not despair of the mercy of Allah. Because this is what the Christians have done. They've taken God's mercy and they've chucked it in the bin. They said, we don't need that. There's no room. In the, where, where's the mercy? Where's the mercy? If you demand a payment, you demand a blood payment. Where's the mercy? But it's not only for them, Muslims should never despair of the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Indeed, Allah forgives all sins. Indeed, it is he who is the forgiving, the merciful, and return in repentance to your Lord and submit to him before the punishment comes upon you, then you will not be helped. And we have an example of that in the Quran from the Pharaoh at the time of Moses, uh, Musa alayhi salam, when Eventually, when he was being swallowed up, right, by the water, he tried to repent in that sense. He said, okay, I, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but basically, you know, I accept the Lord of Moses. Well, it's too late, buddy. It's too late. We know that he's going to be in a hellfire. So this is an example of application I just want to show for the verse. But the point is, up until before death, if you're sincere and you repent, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is giving you a way out. He will forgive you. You should never doubt that. If you're a Muslim and you're thinking... Oh my God, I can't actually, you know, stand before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and ask him for forgiveness. Look what I've done. What are you thinking? You are despairing of Allah's mercy. 
should never even cross your mind. There's always that option to turn back. Again, in the Quran, chapter 7, verse 155, it says, my mercy encompasses all things. Imagine that. The creator's mercy encompasses all things. You see? Now, it gives an example in the Quran of how that repentance actually bears out. In the Quran, chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, the repentance accepted by Allah is only for those who do wrong in ignorance or carelessness and then repent soon after. It is those to whom Allah will turn in forgiveness and Allah is ever knowing and wise. But repentance is not accepted of those who continue to do evil deeds up until when death comes to one of them. He says, indeed, I have repented now like Pharaoh. All of a sudden, death came and he said, oh, I want the heat off mean nope sorry or of those who die while they are disbelievers for them we have prepared a painful punishment so you got to turn back before it's too late you see this is very important but it's clear instructions from the quran there's no ambiguity we don't turn around and say oh now what are we supposed to do no we have clear instruction from the creator and we from the prophetic example from from the prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam we have a clear example of what he did you see now listen to this. This really touched me when I was um, looking at this. There are two verses in the same chapter of the Quran where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala actually says he, de he decreed mercy upon himself. Imagine that. The creator decreed mercy upon himself. Wow, subhanAllah. In the Quran chapter 6 verse 12 it says, Say, to whom belongs whatever is in the heavens and the earth? Say, to Allah. Everything belongs to him. He has decreed upon himself mercy. Wow, he has decreed upon himself mercy. That's a pretty serious statement to make. He will surely assemble you for the day of resurrection about which there is no doubt. There's no doubt about it. It's going to happen. Those who will lose themselves that day do not believe. Now, again, in the same chapter in the Quran, chapter 6, verse 54, it says, and when those come to you who believe in our verses and our ayat, and this is where we get the idea of how we greet other Muslims by saying, assalamu alaikum, say, peace be upon you. So it gives you the command. When other believers come to you, this is what you say. Your Lord has decreed upon himself mercy. Again, that any of you who does wrong out of ignorance and then repents after that and corrects himself, indeed he is forgiving and merciful. So what does it mean for him to decree mercy upon himself? If you turn to your creator sincerely and repent, he will forgive you. That's what it means. Now again, we have a hadith from the Prophet wasallam, where he said, when Allah completed the creation, he wrote in his book, with him upon the throne, verily, my mercy prevails over my wrath. So again, it's with this concept that he's decreed mercy upon himself. See? So we have a merciful God. We don't have a God that demands a payment of a blood sacrifice. Now, it's not only we have a merciful God, we have a merciful prophet, peace be upon him. We have in the Quran in chapter 21, verse 107, and we have not sent you, O Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, except as a mercy to the worlds, to mankind. So this ummah, we have a merciful God, the most merciful, and we have the most merciful as an example from his creation, sent to all of mankind. You see? How, how beautiful is that? SubhanAllah. And notice that the prophet, the most merciful of creation, 
was what? Saved for last. Why? Because he was sent to all of mankind. The previous prophets were sent to specific communities. Jesus, peace be upon him, was sent to the children of Israel. Same thing with uh, Musa salam, and all the prophets were sent to specific people, specific nations. But the last and final messenger and prophet, Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, was sent to all of mankind. You see now the, con the uh, connection between Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's mercy and the prophet being sent to all of mankind. Now what's the application of that? What effect does that have on us here with each other and even non-Muslims? We have from another hadith of the prophet, peace be upon him, the merciful will be shown mercy by the most merciful. Be merciful, merciful to those on the earth and the one in the heavens will have mercy upon you. Look at that. We see the application. Be merciful to your fellow man, not just a Muslim, but even non-Muslims. You set an example. And the most merciful, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, will have mercy upon you. You see? Now that might be hard sometimes, but when it gets hard, think about this next verse in the Quran. Chapter 60, verse 7. Perhaps Allah will put between you and those to whom you have been enemies. Among them, affection. And Allah is competent and Allah is forgiving and merciful. So again, you see, it's that connection with his forgiveness and mercy. And he's competent. What are you trying to say? That the creator couldn't do that? You think that guy was your enemy? That that couldn't be reconciled between you and that other person? Of course, Allah can do that. I know it's hard. Sometimes we say, man, this guy really, he's getting under my skin, right? But sometimes we got to go back to the Quran and the Sunnah and say, are we really trying to live by what our scripture teaches? You see, I know it's hard. It is hard, <laughs> but sometimes we got to reflect on it. You see, and we can think about the example of the prophet, peace be upon him. Why? Because some of his greatest companions ever were initially his enemies. They didn't accept his message. And eventually they embraced it. Me, myself, I didn't know anything about Islam. I didn't, you know, I had a negative understanding of Muslims. But, and, and in fact, just a quick little thing about myself, how I became Muslim, little quick thing. When I first started reading the Quran, I initially started reading the Quran with the wrong intention to refute my friend. Imagine that. I actually started reading the Quran with the wrong intention to refute a Muslim. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala still used the Quran to actually guide me. Subhanallah. So, further in the Quran... We have, as I said, the prophet, peace be upon him, who was sent for us. In chapter 3, verse 31, say, O Muhammad, peace be upon him, if you should love Allah, if you truly love Allah, then follow me, meaning follow the prophet. So Allah will love you and forgive you of your sins. And Allah is forgiving and merciful. So we have the example. If you want that forgiveness, you follow the pro prophetic example. The prophet, peace be upon him, was said to be a walking Quran. So we follow his example, his sunnah. And doing that, because he's the most merciful of creation, we find that representation as an example, and we implement that. And that's how we achieve the mercy and the love of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala.
Now, let's talk about the love of Allah. Sometimes maybe we don't talk about it too much, right? Maybe we don't, you know, we give, got to give it to the Christians. They talk about the love of God and the love of Jesus a lot. Jesus loves you, right? They go all the time around. But how, how often we say, you know what, by the way, Allah loves you. Do we do that enough? Maybe not. I don't know, right? In the Quran, in chapter 85, verse 14, it says, and he is the forgiving, the loving, al-budud. He's the loving. It's one of his names. Again, in the Quran, chapter 11, verse 90, and ask forgiveness of your Lord and then repent to him. Indeed, my Lord is merciful and loving. So we see the connection of his mercy, his love, his forgiveness is connected and all you need to do is ask forgiveness of your Lord, be sincere, turn away from that wickedness, and repent. See? Now, who does Allah love? In the Quran, it's, it's descriptive. He explains it. In the Quran, Surah Baqarah, chapter 2, verse 195, it says, Indeed, Allah loves the doers of good. These are people he loves, the doers of good. Again, in Surah Baqarah, chapter 2, verse 222, Indeed, Allah loves those who are constantly repentant and loves those who purify themselves. Again, in the Quran, chapter 3, verse 146, Allah loves the steadfast. Again, in the same Surah, chapter 3, verse 159, Indeed, Allah loves those who rely upon him. And the last verse in the Quran, chapter 5, verse 42, indeed, Allah loves those who act justly. And there are more, but these are some of the attributes, right? So we see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala loves the doers of good. He loves those who are constantly repentant because why? He's merciful. He wants to forgive you. What does that tell you? He doesn't love the person who just doesn't commit any sins. He loves the person who commits a sin and repents and loves those who purify themselves. Well, you wouldn't need to purify yourself if you weren't doing anything wrong. He loves the steadfast, those who persist, those who rely upon him. When you do do something wrong, you repent to him, not some idol, not Jesus Christ, not some blood of anything. No. And he loves those who act justly. You see? Now, I'm going to close it off with these uh, last couple verses of the Quran. And this has to do with the, the topic and the theme of this year's uh, United Islam Awareness Week, which is coming back home. What does that mean to come back home? Well, I gave my own spin and interpretation on it. You know, when, when somebody becomes a Muslim, we say he's a revert. Why do we say he's a revert? Because, and, and sometimes, and even me when I first heard it, I said, what does that mean, revert? I thought it was convert. What's a revert? Revert comes from this concept that we have in the Quran and the Sunnah of the idea of the fitrah right? The innate nature or disposition that we believe that every human being was created upon. So in the Quran, chapter 30, verse 30, it says, so direct your face towards the religion, inclining towards truth. Adhere to the fitrah of Allah upon which he has created all people. So this is where the concept comes from. No change should there be in the creation of Allah. That is the correct religion, but most of the people do not know. So we have the concept. We also have hadith about it as well. But here's another verse in the Quran in chapter 7, verse 172, 174. It says, And mention when your Lord took from the children of Adam, peace be upon him, from their loins, their descendants, and made them testify of themselves, saying to them, Am I not your Lord? They said, Yes, we have testified. 
Lest you should say on the day of resurrection, indeed, we were of this unaware, or lest you should say it was only that our fathers associated others in worship with the law before, and we were but descendants after them, meaning we just blindly followed them. You know, I'm sorry, uh, Allah, we just blindly followed them. We were just making taklid of these, following these false gods and idols, right? Saying, no, you already testified to this. Then would you destroy us for what the falsifiers have done? They're asking the question, what, are you going to destroy us because we were misled by these other people, our forefathers? And thus do we explain in detail the verses and perhaps they will return. Notice the phrase, and perhaps they will return. Why? Because they're going back to the initial state. This is why the Quran is called the reminder this is one of the names of the Quran is the reminder because it's a reminder, a hearkening back to what you already intuitively have and know. See? So it goes with this concept of coming back home. Or anyway, this is my little spin on uh, the, the theme of this year. Now, what is that home? Well, we have a direct invitation from Allah, the creator. Not from me. Forget about me. I'm Jake. I'm just you know, a spokesperson here. I'm, you know, I'm a nobody. But we have a direct invitation from Allah in the Quran, chapter 10, verse 25. It says what? And Allah invites to the home of peace. He's inviting you to the home of peace. Your creator, i.e. paradise, which it says in brackets, but it's paradise. And guides whom he wills to a straight path. So guidance is with Allah and he's inviting you all to the home of peace. So this is the coming back home because it's not just being coming back home, being a Muslim on earth. It's coming back home eventually to paradise in the afterlife, that salvation. And the last and final verse that I want to quote is in the Quran chapter 6 verse 127 when it says, For them will be the home of peace with their Lord, and he will be their protecting friend. Why? Because of what they used to do. You see? So, I know that most of us here are probably Muslims, but anybody watching who may be a Christian of some other disposition or faith, not me, not Jake, not the Muslim metaphysician, but the creator himself in the Quran is inviting you to that home of peace. So it's an invitation to come back home to that initial state, that fitrah that you were created upon. And that's to serve one and only true creator and to embrace Islam, submission to that creator. Which as we know for us today, this ummah is the Quran and the sunnah of the Prophet So that's an invitation to anybody who may be watching later on because I know we're kind of live streaming or at least maybe it'll up, be uploaded later, inshallah. I hope, inshallah, that this has been of some benefit for you. I know it was reference heavy and I went into details with a lot of points and honestly, I had to curtail it. I could have gone a lot further, you see, because there's just so much. It's such a rich topic to talk about. Jazakallah khair, barakallah feek, brother Jake.